you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31. That is where we find ourselves this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through God's Word and to walk through the book of Genesis. If you are new to our gathering here at Bloomfield Baptist Church, we've been walking through Genesis since last year. And, and as we walked through it, we have learned what it takes for us to be able to sing what we just sang. What it takes for us to say, it is well. And we've learned that it is not a work that we can do, but it is a work that God does on our behalf. And we've seen that work beginning in the very creation itself as God created and as He created a sanctuary there in the garden for Adam and Eve and He placed them there and He provided for them and yet they did what we do. They rebelled and they sinned against God and God gave them consequence of that sin, but we also saw His grace. And we've come back to it often, that verse, Genesis 3.15, the promise from the Lord of an offspring that would come who would crush the head of the enemy. Ultimately, that offspring is Jesus Christ. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can sing it as well. And that it should be a great comfort to you today because so many cannot sing that verse. So many try in their own efforts to have peace and try in their own efforts to say it as well when it's really not well. And they try to cover up things and pretend they're not there. And yet, the reality of the Scripture is, sin is a real thing. There are devastating consequences of it, both of the effects of our sin and the way other people's sin affects us. And yet, in the Gospel, in Christ, we can sing that it is well. Because we can have peace with God. And I hope that you'll see that as we look through this text today. We're picking up in Genesis 31. And... Uh, a Situation that we were looking at last week between a man named Jacob and a man named Laban. Uh, Jacob has come to Laban's land. Laban is a relative of his in order to find a wife. And through many, many circumstances, 20 years later, Jacob is now returning home. And in doing that, he is following the command of God. God who has called him to leave and to return to the land of his fathers and yet... He does it in a very deceptive way. We talked about this last week, how sometimes we can do the right thing the wrong way, and that's what we see in Jacob. And so as we look at this text today, where we pick up is Jacob has deceived Laban. Jacob has fled from Laban. Now Laban is pursuing Jacob. That's how our text begins today. And yet at the end of the passage, which you'll see, is that Jacob and Laban come to an agreement of peace between them. And as we look at this, I want you to consider something. I want you to consider in your own life, are you at peace with others? Is there a relationship in your life where you are not experiencing peace right now? And perhaps could that be because you're not fully understanding or you're not fully at peace with God? You see, if we don't understand what it means to have peace with God, it's hard for us to have peace with others. That's the direction I want to take us as we look at this passage today. So... Add a reverence for God's Word if you are able, if you would stand as we read this text, and then I'll pray for our time in it. Genesis chapter 31, beginning in verse 22. This is what God's Word says to us. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful 
not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents at the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with myrrh and songs and tambourine and lyre? Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now... You have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have taken that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you, Your ewes and female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house, Served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. The God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side. Surely now you would have set, sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters and for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. And let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. And Laban called it Jagar Sahaduth. And Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. 
For he said, the Lord watched between you and me when we were out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. And the God of Abraham, the God of Naor, the God of their father, judged between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. And they ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. If you would, pray with me. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we pray again what we have prayed through many of these scriptures that we've looked at in Genesis. At times, things that seem so unfamiliar to us, practices that we don't necessarily practice today, situations that we may not encounter, and yet there is a theme here in the scripture that we do encounter. We see here sin. We see here the need for peace between two people. And we see here ultimately a covenant made before you through a sacrifice. Lord, we need to understand those things. So help us to understand them as we look to your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, imagine if you were to pick up the newspaper tomorrow morning and the headline were to read this. The merchant of death is dead. That was the headline in papers around the world a number of years ago. In fact, it was all the way back in 1888. And the merchant of death that they were referring to in the papers was a man named Alfred Nobel. Uh, Nobel had spent most of his life designing weapons and, and destructive forces. He, he was actually one who, among all the things he invented... One of his inventions that he's known bus for is dynamite, something still used today. And when it was invented in his day, it was then a force to be used in wars between men and nations. And so when his death was announced, there weren't a lot of kind words said about him. In fact, one paper wrote it this way, Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. The only problem with that obituary was that he didn't actually die. It was his brother who had died. And so you can imagine what it must have been for him, a man who spent most of his life as a chemist and an inventor, designing these and getting patents on these things and designing things like dynamite, to, to read before him what his legacy would be. I mean, imagine that for a second. If you could read your obituary, read what it is people would say of you, and as he read those things about himself, he began, I believe, to consider what type of legacy he was going to leave behind. And so that then led him to rewrite his will. And the bulk of his massive estate then, he, he left to something called the Nobel Prizes. Principle of which is the Nobel Peace Prize. That prize, valued each year at over a million dollars, is given to the person or persons who has found that year to best bring peace to the nations. And it was established by a man who invented objects 
of destruction between nations. Many biographers have written about Nobel since then, and they've tried to figure out well, why it is he established this Peace Prize. And most of them come to a similar conclusion that when faced with the reality of what his legacy would be, when looking back and seeing how much destruction his inventions had brought, he wanted to find peace and leave a legacy of peace. They oftentimes, at death, that's when we speak of people being at peace. We, we go to funeral homes and you hear people say things like, well, they're at peace now. Well, they look so peaceful. And so perhaps Nobel, in his death, was seeking to be known by something other than what his life was known by, to be known as a man of peace. And, and to that end, I think he succeeded. Most of you today, when you hear the name Nobel, you don't think of dynamite. You think of the Peace Prize. But here's the question. Is that what it takes to have peace? Do we have to leave massive estates behind to prizes in our name to have peace? Is it only in death that we can find peace? Or does the Bible offer us something else? Is there an opportunity for you and I to have peace with God and then as a result of that peace to have peace with one another? Or is the only opportunity... Once we get in a casket. Well, I think the scripture speaks of an opportunity in this life to have peace. And I think we see it in part in this passage today. Now again, what, what we have in this passage is two men who aren't at peace with one another. Uh, Jacob has been told by God to leave and he's doing what God said. But the way he does it is he's deceptive. And Laban and his sin has been very deceptive and is schemed against Jacob. And now Laban is pursuing Jacob. These are two men, two humans who aren't at peace with one another. And by the end of the passage, that they do come to peace, although I don't know that either of them is perfect in that. But, but what I think we can learn from this, what I think we can apply from this text today is, what is it that keeps us from having peace with one another? And how ultimately can we have peace? Before we get in the casket. Peace in this life. Peace that's not determined by the size of an estate we leave towards a prize. I think we begin to see that in the scripture as we look to this passage and look to the first point I've put there in your notes. The point that if we don't deal with sin, sin deals with us. Remember what's taking place here. Jacob has sinned against Laban. Laban has sinned against Jacob. And God has come to Jacob and He said, listen, I'm going to be with you. You don't need to fear anything. And so Jacob, I believe at this point, had every opportunity to go to Laban and boldly confront him and tell him, God's called me to leave and here's why I'm leaving and there's nothing you can do to me to bring harm. Yet that's not what Jacob does. The Scripture says that Jacob then deceives Laban. Jacob goes back to his trickery, to his schemes, in order to run away from Laban, and ultimately he does it because he's scared. And in running away from him, notice the problem doesn't go away. The problem follows him. See, Laban learns that Jacob has fled, and so then Laban begins to flee Jacob. Now in this, I think there's a, a point for us to learn about how we deal with conflict, how we deal with sin. See, the Scripture says, and we looked at last week, that we are to flee sin. If you're aware of sin in your life this Lord's Day, the Scripture says repent, turn from it, get away from it, flee sin. But oftentimes, rather than just fleeing sin, 
We flee dealing with sin. And there's a difference there. You see, we have to deal with sin. Principally, the Scripture tells us we need to repent of it. Oftentimes, though, how we deal with sin is we just kind of ignore it. Whether it's our sin or it's someone else's sin. And when we simply ignore it, it doesn't go away. And when we don't deal with it, it ends up dealing with us. I think you see this in Jacob's life. He never dealt with the issue up to this point with Laban. He didn't confront him on the issues. And so now Laban's coming after him, and he can't outrun Laban. And I think the same thing is true in our life when you look at how it is we deal with sin and deal with conflict. If we don't deal with those things, they will ultimately deal with us. And this is what that looks like on a practical level this Lord's Day for you. If there is sin in your life today, and your way of dealing with it is to ignore it, or you're not really dealing with it. And if there is sin in someone else's life, someone who is close to you, someone in your life, a friend, a family member, and your way of dealing with sin is to simply ignore it, you're not really dealing with it. Why, why is it that that happens so often? Why is it that we're so often tempted to not deal with sin? Well, what I've heard often from people is, well, you know, the Bible tells us not to judge. So, who, who am I to judge someone? Well, Jesus Himself does say something along those lines in Matthew 7, but context is important. In the context of Matthew 7, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. Jesus is not saying that if you stop judging people, God won't judge you. <laughs> that is anti-gospel. That is not what the Scripture teaches. You and I will most certainly be judged by God. And we'll get more to that in the Gospel in a moment. So if Jesus isn't saying, ignore judgment, what is He saying? Well, keep reading the passage. In Matthew 7, when Jesus says, judge not, or essentially, you're going to be judged, He goes on to give an illustration. An illustration that's probably familiar to some of you. You may not realize it follows that statement by Jesus. An illustration where He says, listen, you need to remove the log from your eye so you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. But if you don't remove the log from your eye, how can you see to remove the speck from your brother's eye? What is Jesus saying there? Is He saying, don't remove the speck from your brother's eye? Absolutely not. He's saying, get that big giant log out of your eye first. I mean, just imagine that. I went to the eye doctor on Friday. How many of you would feel comfortable going into an eye doctor's office and he comes in to examine you and he physically has a stick sticking out of his eye? Anybody want to go to that guy? Anybody want him poking around in your eye? No. You, you would probably, whether you made an excuse or whatever, you would get out of that office as quickly as you could. Why? Because he can't even see what's in front of him. You're not going to let him start poking around in your eyeballs. Jesus here makes a very clear point. But it's not about eye doctors. It's about sin. And Jesus says, listen, if you've got this blaring sin issue in your life, deal with it first so that then you can see clearly to go deal with your brother's sin. The Scripture does not say to Christians, hey Christians, don't judge. The Scripture says to Christians, Christians, look in the mirror, deal with your sin, so that then you can see clearly, biblically, graciously, how to then deal with someone else in their sin. But so often we don't. And there's all kinds of reasons for it. 
We may not see it as loving, but really at the end of the day, I think it comes down to it's just not comfortable for us. Most of us don't enjoy confronting people in their sin. And if you do enjoy confronting people in their sin, you might have some other issues. It's not something that we should get excited about. And yet, the Scripture calls us clearly to deal with sin, deal with sin in our lives, deal with sin in the lives of others. And if we do not do this, well, we're not going to have biblical peace. And we certainly don't see peace in Jacob in Laban's life when they're refusing to deal with one another's issues. In fact, what we see is a deceptive Jacob fleeing from Laban, and then we see really an angry Laban fleeing Jacob. Laban learns of these things, and the Scripture says he gets his kinsmen and he pursues him. I mean, the, 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 the Wild West version of this is he gets up a posse. <laughs> he's going to get all kinds of people, and he's going to go after Jacob. But notice the hand of God in this process. We read in the Scripture, verse 24, that God comes to Laban in a dream and He says, you better be careful. You better watch out what you say to my servant, my my man, Jacob. You better not say anything good or bad to him. God here reminds Laban that he's sovereign and he's in control. But we're reminded in this at this point that sin will keep us from peace And that sin will follow us if we don't deal with it. But there is a way to deal with peace. There is a way to have peace. And that comes through dealing with sin. Which is the second point there in your notes. In order to have peace, sin must be dealt with. And this is the dealing we're going to see happen now in this passage. Laban comes to Jacob. And Laban comes to Jacob and says, Why did you do this? What have you done to me? What have you done? This is reminiscent of what we've seen in Genesis already. Usually from the man of God that God has called who is not trusting Him and is then confronted by a total pagan asking Him, what are you doing? It goes all the way back to Abraham. Remember how Abraham got scared when he went down to Egypt that Pharaoh was going to kill him for his wife because she was so beautiful? And so he came up with this wonderful scheme. Well, I'll just say she's my sister. And then it'll all work out. Men, if that's your inclination to get out of something, it's probably not going to work out real well. It certainly doesn't work out real well for Abraham because God speaks to Pharaoh. And God tells Pharaoh, here's what's going on. And so then Pharaoh, this pagan ruler, comes to Abraham, the man of God, and says, what have you done to me? Why did you lie and say she was your sister? She's your wife. And you would think once would be enough to learn from that, but Abraham goes and does it a second time. And then his son Isaac does the exact same thing. And then you see Jacob here, not in the same exact scenario, but essentially a similar situation where he fails to trust God, he fails to be faithful, and as a result, this pagan comes to him and says, what are you doing to me? That's what we have here between Laban and Jacob. And so Laban comes to him and basically says, listen, you ran away from me. You didn't give me a chance to, to, to kiss my grandbabies. Hey, you didn't give me a chance to send you off well. Well, we know as we've read about Laban, chances are that's not what he was going to do. But the point is, Laban's basically saying to Jacob, why'd you deceive me? And not only that, he then addresses this issue of these household gods being stolen. If you were with us last week, we talked about this. Laban was not one who followed the same God that Jacob did, and so he had all these idols, these household gods, and Rachel had stolen them. 
Jacob doesn't know Rachel's stolen them, and so now one of the things that Laban addresses with Jacob is these household gods are missing. And Jacob's so confident that he didn't take them and nobody with him had taken him that he tells Laban, well, you go find them, and in presence of all these witnesses, whoever took them, you can just kill them. <laughs> I mean, he's pretty confident. And so then Laban goes searching and looking for him, and then we have this awkward, to say the least, encounter where he goes into Rachel and she says, I'm not getting up for female reasons. And she was probably most likely in the context just lying even about that because she wanted to protect herself. She had probably heard her father's threats. <laughs> He's going to kill whoever's got these. Or perhaps she's just so desperately holding on to them and her lack of trusting God and trusting in herself and whatever she could do and maybe even superstition that there's some power in these idols. She's not going to give these up. And so she lies to her father and then he comes back to Jacob. And then we've got this dialogue where Jacob finally does what I believe he should have done long ago. He finally stands up to Laban and he just unloads. I mean, he tells Laban, listen, I served you all these years. I did all these things you told me to do. And you kept changing my wages and you kept deceiving me. And yet, I did what I was supposed to do. And if God had not been with me, if the true God of Abraham had not watched over me, I probably wouldn't even be here today, is essentially what Jacob says. And for the first time in this passage, between these two men who are lacking peace we start to see the issues get dealt with. And we see Jacob here starting to address some of the sin between he and Laban. Again, not perfectly, but I think it's a picture of something for us. I think it's an indicator for us that in order for us to have peace, sin has to be dealt with. And yet so often, we want to say we have peace when we've never addressed sin, and in reality, we don't really have peace. Because what we do so often when someone has sinned against us, or we've sinned against them, or there's some sin issue, is we just have this attitude of, well, I'll just look past it. Well, I'll just kind of turn and ignore it. Well, we'll just let bygones be bygones. Well, we'll just forgive, and we'll forget and yet, while those statements may comfort us, they're not exactly biblical. Think of what we've seen in the Scripture just in Genesis. God addresses Adam and Eve in the garden where they have sinned against them. And notice God does not look at Adam and Eve and say, well, we'll just let bygones be bygones. <laughs> well, better luck next time, Adam and Eve. Well, it'll all work out. <laughs> no, He deals with them by dealing with their sin. By addressing their sin. By giving them consequence of sin. He addresses it by giving them the promise of true peace that will come through the offspring, through Jesus. He points them towards the Gospel. He points them towards Christ to say, here's where true peace comes. But to get there, we've got to deal with sin. And in dealing with sin, Adam and Eve, you are now expelled from the garden. And Adam, from dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. That's how God deals with sin. And not just there, consistently in the Scripture. You read a few chapters ahead, Genesis 6. The earth has become so wicked that God is going to wipe it out with a flood. 
there's just wickedness everywhere. There's sin. And God doesn't look at the sin and say, oh, well, they don't know any better. Or, oh, you know, let bygones be bygones. No, He says sin's got to be dealt with. And I'm going to have to cleanse the earth of them. But in His grace, in His mercy, He preserves a remnant in Noah and his family who He then places on the ark in that little sanctuary, in that little garden, and, and keeps them safe and protects them. And, and they're not going to be perfectly obedient. They're not going to be faithful. But what we see here is a theme. God takes sin seriously. God deals seriously with sin. And unless sin is dealt with, we can't have true, lasting peace. And we need to be careful that we don't fall in the same category as those in the Scripture who God speaks very harshly to. Those who consistently through the prophets He says this to. You say peace, peace, where there is no peace. You see, our our attitude often is to just look past sin, not deal with sin, say it's going to be okay. And in doing that, we are saying peace, peace, where there is no peace. And as a result, it all falls apart. And that's why some of us in our relationships today, we don't have peace with anybody. (laughs) Because we never deal with sin. We don't deal with our sin, we don't deal with their sin. And, And that may be because we don't even understand what it means to have peace with God. And if we don't have peace with God... It's impossible to have peace with others. See, that's where true biblical peace starts. And that's what we see here in this last point I want to address in your outline. Point three. God offers us peace through cutting a covenant. That language, cutting a covenant, we've seen that before and we'll see it in this passage. I'll explain in just a moment, but first look and see where you see it here. Jacob unloads a lab and he says, listen, you've done all these things. If it hadn't been for God and His faithfulness to me, I wouldn't be here. And so Laban and Jacob now come to the table to, to make an attempt at peace. And notice what that peace is rooted in. Verse 44, Laban says to Jacob, come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. The, the, the word here, the phrase here used for make a covenant is the phrase cut a covenant. We've talked about this before with Abraham. In Abraham's day, in Jacob's day, when a covenant was made, a covenant was cut. And, and it's detailed and outlined there in the Scripture when we look at Genesis 15. Just by way of review, essentially cutting a covenant was this. That the two parties would gather animals... And they would cut the animals in half. And they would put the the pieces, the parts of the animals on either side of a path. And then they would walk through that path together. And when they did that, what they were saying was this. If I violate this covenant, may it so be done to me what we've done to these animals. Now, you probably prefer just signing all those mortgage papers, don't you? Not quite as serious as all the blood and gore, but man, that says something, doesn't it? If I don't keep my word, may I so experience this. If you don't keep your word, this is what's going to happen to you. That, that's what it meant to cut a covenant. So when Laban addresses Jacob, he's saying, this is serious, and we're going to do this 
And we're going to do it the right way. And if you read through it, you'll notice that it isn't just a covenant between two men, but it is ultimately rooted in a blood sacrifice before a holy God. You see, Laban and Jacob are looking at each other and both of them are deceivers. Both of them are liars. Both of them have schemed and tricked one another. Why why would either of them trust the other? And so the way this covenant is going to be held together is they basically agree to this. Okay, Jacob, you're going to go back to your father's land and maybe one day you're going to get this idea in your head that nobody else is going to hear and you're going to get this idea to come back and wipe out Laban and take everything he ever had. But Jacob... God knows what you're thinking. And so God's going to judge you, Jacob, whether you keep this covenant or not. And if you don't keep it, may this be so done to you. And Laban, you're going to go back home and you're going to get jealous and mad again, probably. And in your anger, you're going to start thinking about how all this livestock that was once under, under your care through Jacob, it's all gone now. And maybe you start to think, well, I'm just going to go over there to his father's land and I'm going to wipe him out and I'm going to take it back. But Laban, God will judge you. And if you even consider that, may God so do to you what we've done to these animals. You see, this covenant of peace between Jacob and Laban is rooted neither in Jacob or Laban, but in a holy God who is righteous and pure. And friends, what this points us towards, the direction this is going, is is not go home and get out the steak knife to make a covenant. The direction this goes is, have you seen another covenant in the Scripture? Another blood sacrifice? Where one is literally torn apart so that faithless men could be brought into a covenant with a faithful God. Absolutely. It's what the gospel is. Jesus' death on the cross is not supplemental insurance. Jesus' death on the cross is substitutionary. He dies on your part and on my part, in your place and in my place. Because if it's you and me walking through the cut up animals, it will so be done to us because we will fall short. And even in our best attempts to have peace with one another, we will sin and we will fall short. But you go back to that passage in Genesis with God and Abraham and you notice that God's the only one that walks through the animals. His presence passes through because He is the covenant keeper. And when we enter into a relationship with Him through the Gospel where we understand that we have sinned and we fall short, that we too should be kicked out of the garden, should be wiped out by the flood, but God in His grace towards us in our sin, Christ has died on the cross for us and through Christ, in Christ, as we repent and place our faith in Him, we can, may, we can have peace with the Holy God. When we understand that and accept that and live that within Having peace with others isn't so difficult. You think about somebody in your life right now you don't have peace with. And I'm not asking you to stand up and testify. (laughs) Just think for a second about it. What, what, What have they done to you? What is their sin against you that has brought you to a point where you will not even mention their name, where you won't pick up the phone and call them, where you don't want to be in their presence? And then consider that in light of 
every sin you have ever committed or thought of or considered for a moment and how a holy God through Christ has forgiven you of all that and says to you who He has not withheld forgiveness from you, how then can you withhold forgiveness from them? So your peace with them is not rooted in how faithful they are, how faithful you are. Your peace with them is rooted in the peace you have with God through the Gospel. The Gospel you don't deserve and I don't deserve. The Gospel that's completely a work of God and by His grace. Now I understand in some relationships when I speak of peace, again, I'm not talking about overlooking sin. I'm not talking about, well, just just take them as they are. No, the Scripture gives us specifics on how to deal with people in their sin. And there are times in the Scripture where we are to discipline people. We are, we are to separate from them because of their sin in a biblical, gracious way. But if you're withholding in that process forgiveness, you're sinful and you're wrong. And you need to repent. And you need to be reminded from two very imperfect people today, Jacob and Laban and and just a mess that had gone on between them for two decades, that God can reconcile anything. <laughs> and God brought these two men to a point where they could offer a sacrifice together, cut a covenant together, share a meal together, and leave in peace. They're not going to be best friends. In fact, we don't really see mention of Laban after this. Uh, we certainly wouldn't label him as someone who walked faithfully with God. But there is a picture here And it's a picture that the Gospel offers us. That we can have peace with God through Christ. And in that, we can have peace with one another. But it's rooted in the Gospel. Do you have that peace today? Do you have it with God? If not, clearly repent and confess Christ. Do you have that peace and yet you so often lack peace with others? Then I believe the Scripture would call you and I to repent And as much as it's possible for us, seek peace with that person. Not by overlooking sin, but by dealing with sin. Because that is how God has made peace with us. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank You that You offer us peace. And Lord, that it doesn't come in the form of wiping the slate clean, or forgiving and forgetting, or turning the other cheek, or... Letting bygones be bygones, Lord, it comes in the form of You dealing with sin very seriously on the cross. And so, Father, I pray that we would acknowledge that, that we would deal with our sin seriously as well, that we would see the need to repent, Lord, if there is sin in our life, and there most certainly is. Lord, for any who's yet to trust Christ, I pray that they would see today that they can, they can never, in their own efforts, achieve righteousness. That their good works are not going to get them into heaven. But Lord, they need to repent. And Lord, they need to turn to You. And they need to confess Christ is Lord. And Father, that is the only thing that gives us peace. It's not a check we write before we die. (laughs) But Lord, it's a surrender of our lives to the Gospel. For those, Lord, who have that peace, but perhaps are not at peace with others, Perhaps there's many, many different situations and many different stories and so many details to work through, but Lord, I pray foundationally You you help them, You help me, You help us all to understand that, that You have offered us a peace 
that allows us to have peace with others. You have forgiven us that we might forgive others. And so, Lord, I pray very specifically you would convict us and call us in relationships that we need to seek peace in where perhaps we're not at peace today. And that ultimately, Lord, we would be peacemakers with a lost and dying world who are not at peace with you right now. And Lord, who can only come to that through the gospel of Jesus. Would you help us to go and proclaim that to them? We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.